All right, well played, well played. Uh, Shane, uh, it's, it's great to be here with you. I, I realize you and I never gonna lead the league in uh, most homeschool references and probably prop budgets. Can't compete with the one who is before you, but uh, glad you're here, Shane. Uh, it, is, uh, it is good to be with you all uh, this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're gonna spend some time in 1 Samuel, so if you wanna turn there and um, let us continue in worship in prayer. God, we thank you for a morning to gather together with brothers and sisters that we have because of our baptism, this new family that we have all been joined to because of Jesus. We thank you for that. And God, I pray now a prayer that has been prayed for many people before uh, in this very church. I pray that you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that what we hear this morning is a word from you. In your name we pray. Amen. So Saul was the first king of Israel, and he was a man that stood, according to Scripture, head and shoulders above everyone else. But on this day, he wasn't standing too tall, because his son's best friend had won the hearts of all the people. And Saul declared and decided within his own heart that he was going to kill his son's best friend, killing his son's best friend, which seems like a terrible thing to do until your kids get in middle school. And you're like, I kind of get it. I kind of get it. But he was afraid that he was going to lose his throne and his power. But his son, Jonathan, found out that his dad wanted to kill his best friend, David. And so Jonathan and David came up with this complex system involving how far an arrow was to be shot to let David know if, in fact, his father, Jonathan's father, was going to kill him. And so go through with, with this bow and arrow demonstration, and David realizes Saul's out to kill him. And so this is the text from 1 Samuel 20, starting in verse 8. This is David speaking to Jonathan. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a sacred covenant with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. Why should you bring me to your father? So in gratitude for what Jonathan has done for him, he says this. And then in response, Jonathan says this a few verses later to David. If I am still alive, show me the faithful love of the Lord. But if I die, never cut off your faithful love from my house, even if the Lord were to cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So David asked, why are you being so kind to me? And in response, Jonathan says, would you be, would you be faithful and kind back to me and my, my people, my, my family? Well, as the story goes on, David flees, but Jonathan and his father Saul eventually both die. And you fast forward all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and this is the recollection that David has of this experience and how he should respond. So this is 2 Samuel 9, starting in verse 1. David asked, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and he was summoned to David. The king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at, at your service. The king said, 
Is there anyone remaining of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, there remains a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. This is a man named Mephibosheth who's brought before him, and this is verse 7. David says to him, do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. David says, I'm going to give you kindness for your dad's sake. And you're no longer going to be in exile. You're no longer going to be an other. You are going to be welcomed home because I'm going to give you kindness. And that naturally brings us to LeBron James. So uh, this video clip right here is of LeBron James' 14-year-old son playing basketball in Las Vegas this summer. Take a look at this clip right here. Again, he's 14. Did I say he's 14 already? He's 14. And that's LeBron right there, celebrating. Now, some people, when they saw LeBron James' 14-year-old son dunk and LeBron do this number right here, they decided to say this is a terrible thing. Because clearly, the worst thing in the world is an overly involved father celebrating his son's athletic success. And I, I realize I'm a little bit partial because when my daughters turn 14 and they start dunking like that in basketball games, I've already decided I'm going to do the same thing. But there's one person who had no protest to this. Not one person who didn't think, there was one person who didn't think this was terrible at all. And that person was the father of one of the other athletes who was playing in this basketball tournament in Las Vegas. And that gentleman works at TMZ. So now, as you always do at Highland, let's play a clip from TMZ. We have a guy here whose kid plays against LeBron James' kid. Oh. He came up to my son after the game and said, I hope I'm still in the league when you're playing. And my son broke down crying. Players and the families, when LeBron James does all this stuff, they don't see it as a distraction. No, it's, it's something my son will have the rest of his life. Thanks, J.D. So at the tournament, LeBron goes up to that guy's son and says, I hope I'm still playing basketball when you make the league. He did for that boy what that boy could never have imagined. But I know he would love it. I don't know about you, but when, when I was 14, I would have loved if just a senior in high school acknowledged my existence, let alone the most prominent athlete in the world. Uh, Christopher Wright, in his book, Cultivating the Spirit, describes kindness this way. He says this. He says, kindness seems very close to what Jesus meant when he said that we should do for others whatever we wish others would do for us. Kindness is doing for others really as we would like them to do for us. But we can't do it. It's kindness. But the thing about kindness, no matter how you describe it or define it, it seemingly always brings up one question. The question is, why? When LeBron James goes up to that 14-year-old and says that very life-changing thing to him, you can imagine that kid and his father and the rest of his family would go, but, but why? Why'd you do that? When Jonathan's disabled son is given this kindness from David, see what his response is. Go back to verse 8. 
2 Samuel verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 8. He did obeisance and said, What is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? He's saying, why? Why are you doing this to me? Because kindness almost always brings up the question of why. Uh, the year was 1997. There was a young family that had just received the great blessing of a new child. 1997, a boy named Max was born. And shortly after, his family moved to London, where his father, Drew, took a job as the chief investment officer of a financial firm in London. As Drew grew up, he was just a wonderful boy that, that every parent dreams of having. But when he turned 16, his parents described some major change that happened. And all of a sudden, this beautiful child that they had loved seemed to just change right in front of them. And his demons took hold of him. With addictions to drugs and a battle with mental illness that seemed to be winning. The parents were distraught. Many mornings they found themselves sitting on the stoop of their house in London, just waiting for their son to come home. And when he wouldn't, as they would often do, they would call the police or the hospital, trying to figure out where their kid is. And they tried everything that a worried parent would do in a situation like that. They went to psychiatrists, they changed schools, they took them to, to wilderness therapy, but none of them seemed to make a difference with this addiction that he was in the midst of. Uh, Drew was terrified that his son would even take his own life. And from 16 to 17 to 18, it was just a nightmare. It was a living hell for this family. And when he was around 18, Max told his parents that he needed to make a change, that this community that he was in in London was just disastrous for him. So he wanted to make a change. And his parents were at their wits' end, and they said, fine. And so Max decides he's going to go to Costa Rica and start over. And his parents really believed this was their kid's last chance. And so they bought him a plane ticket, gave him a week's worth of money, and said, after this, you're, you're on your own. You've got to figure it out. And so he flew to Costa Rica, was living in a hostel, got a job at a hostel where they let him work there so he could stay for free. Things seemed to be good for a while, and then the same demons came out as they always do. And Max himself contemplated ending it all. And one evening, he was walking the streets of St. Teresa, Costa Rica, and he stumbled into this little malnourished eight-week-old dog that had been abandoned. This little eight-week-old dog. And Max's heart fluttered. He saw this dog and decided he's going to take care of this little dog. He named the dog Chica. Uh, here's actually a picture of Chica. And as Max started to take care of Chica, Chica started to take care of him. Uh, Max needed to work to take, to have money to take Chica to the vet and give, him, give her food and give her all the stuff she needed. And in that need for responsibility, Max started to take care of himself. Max was taking care of Chica. Chica was taking care of Max. And his parents back in London could hear something was changing even over the phone. And they said that it sounded like our old boy was back. And after a few months, Max said he was ready to come back. But he wasn't going to come back to London. He was going to come back to the States. 
but he didn't know where in the States he was going to go. He thought about maybe going to Georgia, where his mom was from, but ultimately decided to go to Indianapolis, Indiana, where his dad was from. And so Max and Chica go to Indianapolis, Indiana. Max gets a job. He figures out a way to kind of manage his demons. And after a few months of being there, things really seem to have turned the corner. And one day, Max is out with Chica. They're walking the streets of Indianapolis. And Chica sees something that, he had never, that she had never seen before in Costa Rica, a squirrel. She bolts after the squirrel and runs into the road. And a car hits her. And in a second, Max sees everything that he had worked for. Flattened on the street. He runs out of the street, and the car that hit Chica drove off. And so there, this 19 year, now 19-year-old young man is there with this half-dead dog on the road, and he is distraught. He's down on the ground looking at Chica. And he hears the car stop, and a 21-year-old young man get out. He assesses the situation and says, I got you. And this 21-year-old kid from Georgia comes over, scoops up the dog, and tells Max, get in the car. We're going to take you to a vet. So this 21-year-old kid from Georgia, who actually had just moved from Indianapolis after kind of losing a job up in uh, New York, finds a vet clinic on his phone, drives Chica and Max to the vet clinic. Chica and Max go in, they see the vet, and the vet says, this dog is about to die, it needs a surgery, but I can't do the surgery here, you got to go somewhere else. So he didn't know what to do, and so he walks out into the waiting room, and who does he see? That 21-year-old kid who's originally from Georgia, said, I got you, and he drives him to another vet clinic. The vet does a surgery, Chica lives. Here's actually a picture now of Max on the right, and this is the 21-year-old young man from Georgia named Kenny who took him. Uh, Max is doing great now. He's got a full-time job. He's running marathons. And just recently, Max's father, Drew Dixon, the chief investment officer at a financial firm in London, actually wrote a blog wanting to thank Kenny. Let me read a section of that to you. Uh, this is Drew Dixon talking about Kenny. He says, this guy, Kenny, I want to reach out and give him the biggest hug he ever got. I want to tell him that he is special. I want to thank him for saving Chica's life, and I want to thank him for saving my son's. Oh, and as a follow-up, we got some good news about Kenny this past week. It's some really good news. Kenny not only got that job offer, he just got a nice long contract along with it. Kenny Moore from Valdosta, Georgia, just signed a four-year contract with the Indianapolis Colts to be the highest-paid slot corner in the NFL in a deal that is going to pay him at least $30 million over the next four years. Here's Kenny Moore in his work clothes right here. And the best thing about this story is that Kenny Moore never once said anything about it. It wasn't until Max's father, Drew Dixon, posted this on his blog that reporters all over the sports world found out a year later. And every one of them went up to Kenny and had one thing they wanted to know. It was the question, why? Why'd you do this? Because kindness always elicits the question of why. It was Mephibosheth to David. It was everyone to Kenny. And it's you every time someone extends kindness to you. And the response to why we are kind varies. There's an author named Anita Roddick who wrote a book called A Revolution of Kindness. 
And she says, the reason that we extend kindness is because it draws people to ourselves. And there's something true about that. You, when you extend kindness, you connect people to you. LeBron James now has a friend at TMZ because he extended kindness to that man's son. Kenny Moore has a friend in London because he extended kindness to that man's son. It's a sort of proverbial wisdom that we even see in the Old Testament scriptures. In Proverbs 11, scripture says, those who are kind reward themselves, but the cruel do themselves harm. There's this kind of earthly proverbial wisdom. If you do nice to people, nice things usually come back to you. But there is a more substantial, a deeper Christological reason why we extend kindness as followers of Jesus. It's not just so that people are drawn to us. It's because people are drawn to God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You extend kindness, not so you draw people to you, but so that people will be drawn to God. It's ultimately about God's kindness being seen. And even David knows this. Even David somehow communicates this. If we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3, David, the king, said, Is there anyone remaining of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of myself? It doesn't say that. It says the kindness of God. It's ultimately about God's kindness being seen in the way that we live. Maybe now more than ever, our world is in desperate need of kindness. With technology, we have lost our empathy because the words that we communicate to others are rarely seen face to face. We've lost our ability to be empathetic. Our political system is so polarized that all we see are enemies instead of our neighbors. Our world needs kindness. But for others to see the kindness of God it probably starts with us seeing the image of God in others. If we want others to see the kindness of God in our lives, it probably starts with us seeing the image of God in everyone. Teresa of Avil said, make yourself the servant of all and you will see Christ in others and then you will extend reverence and respect. When you see Christ, when you see God in others, you will naturally extend kindness to them. But the problem is it's not always this easy to see God in others. You don't see it. Sometimes people make it very difficult for you to see God in them. Sometimes people just bring into every situation their baggage. They just wheel in their luggage full of issues. And so it's hard to see God in them. But if you don't, you're probably rarely going to extend the kindness of God. Brene Brown in her book, Rising Strong, tells a story of going to this conference down in the uh, Houston area, I believe. And she gets to this conference, and the conference coordinator has been kind of passive-aggressive and condescending towards Brene. And telling Brene, oh, I know you're too big time to be here with us little people. But thanks for being here anyway. And so Brene kind of felt like she was being talked down to, even though she was doing a favor to these people to, to be here. But she doesn't say anything about it. She just goes about doing her business. And then so she goes to the room that she's assigned to in the hotel to stay, and she has a roommate who she's never met before in this hotel room for the conference for the weekend. And she opens the door, and there her weekend roommate is in the room with her muddy boots on the couch. 
And Brene is aghast. Who would do this? And the person sees the look on Brene's face and she says, oh, it's not my couch. It doesn't even matter. Brene's like, what is wrong with you? And then this lady starts smoking in the hotel room, even though there's clear signs saying you, you can't smoke anywhere in the facility. And so Brene's really struggling. She's got the condescending coordinator and the, and, the, and the roommate who no one wants to have as your roommate. And so she, she leaves the conference and sues us over. She gets back home and she goes to her therapist. And she goes into the therapist's office and says, can you believe this? And describes the condescending coordinator and the muddy boots roommate. And she expects the therapist to say, oh my goodness, Brene, those people are the worst. But instead, the therapist acts like a good therapist and kind of goes deeper and makes it not about them and more about what's going on in Brene's heart. And the therapist says to Brene, did you ever imagine that those people are doing the best they can? To which Brene goes, no, I didn't think that at all. And so Brene's bothered by it, as anyone is when you really hear a word from the Lord, it just stays with you. And so she leaves the therapy, and she's angry. She wanted the therapist to be on her side, but she's clearly not. And so she leaves, and she goes about her day, and she, her next errand for the day is to go to the bank. And she goes to the bank, but she's not really thinking about withdrawals and deposits. All she's thinking about is, are those people doing the best they can? A question is stuck in her, her brain. And she's standing in line, and she's second in line. The person in front of her is at the, the teller's uh, station, and she overhears this woman who's been around probably seven decades on the earth, according to Brene. And this woman says, this can't be right. I didn't make that withdrawal. I didn't make that withdrawal. This can't be right. And the young man behind the counter is in his 20s, African-American man. And this man says, I, I, I'm sorry, ma'am, but uh, this is what's there. And, and Brene's hearing this conversation from a few feet back. And so this woman in her 70s, this white woman says, this can't be right. I want to talk to your manager. And so the bank teller points to his manager, a woman in her 40s, African-American woman, and this white woman behind the teller station says, not her. I want a different manager. The only manager working walks over and kindly escorts her to her office. And the 20-year-old man, the man in his 20s, behind the counter, motions for Brene to walk up. And Brene walks up and goes, do you think people are doing the best they can? And the teller goes, you just saw that, didn't you? She goes, yeah. Do you think people are doing the best they can? And he kind of dances around the question, doesn't really answer it. And then she says again, do you think people are doing the best they can? And he finally looks at her and goes, are you a psychiatrist or something? She goes, no, I'm a researcher. And then he says, when I came back home after serving two tours in Iraq, which at that moment, Brene feels like, oh, my question really doesn't matter. <laughs> when I got back home after serving two tours in Iraq, I had to go to a therapist because my wife had an affair with someone that both of us knew while I was in Iraq. And it really did a number on me. And Brene stopped asking the question at that point, finished up her bank uh, issue, and started to walk off. But before she did, the teller said one more thing to her. And this is that in Brene's own words. From Rising Strong, Brene writes, this is what he says to her. The thing is, you never know 
about people. That lady could have a kid on drugs stealing money from her account or a husband with Alzheimer's who's taking money and not even remembering. You just never know. People aren't themselves when they're scared. It might be all they can do. You don't know. When Kenny Moore stopped to help that 19-year-old young man whose bloody dog was on the road, there's no way he knew what that dog meant to that young man's sobriety. Didn't know. When David said, is there anyone from the house of Jonathan who I can extend the kindness of God to? There's no way he knew that Mephibosheth was disabled in a world that was heavily slanted towards able-bodied people. There's no way he knew. In the same way that there's probably no way you know what that person who's so difficult for you to extend kindness to is going through. You don't know. And that's why it's so vital for us to see not the external, but we see the internal where the image of God resides. And even if the external says, I've got the wrong conclusion on this political issue, I voted for this person instead of that person, I talk this way, I do these things, for us to see past that and to see the image of God in them so that in response they can see the kindness of God through us. If you want others to see the kindness of God, it usually starts by you seeing the image of God in them. Uh, the word that Paul uses in the book of Galatians to describe kindness, this thing that happens when you're living in the Spirit, this fruit that develops in your life, is the word chestos in Greek, or at least I would say that confidently if my Greek professors weren't in the class or the room this morning. Uh, but I've read that some of the early church were often called chestos because chestos and Christos sound so similar. And so the early Christians, because of a, a, a similar sound of word, were sometimes not referred to as the Christ people, but simply as the kind people. Sadly, that doesn't always happen with Christ people these days. Because we live in a world that's so polarized, that's lost the ability to be empathetic. And so what we see are typically people who are different, who talk different, act different, vote different, instead of seeing the image of God in them. May we instead in this new year be the kind of people that see the image of God inside of people so that the others around us may see the kindness of God in us. Amen? Amen. Would you please stand? As you leave this place this morning, may you go empowered by the Spirit of God, the Spirit that is indwelling in you to fill you up so that you may enter a world with the kindness of God so that others may know that they are loved. You are dismissed.